Hunters wear bright orange. That's not to make you stealthy. <laughs> well, they, they wear bright orange because they hunt things that are colorblind, Ishan. But not all D&D monsters are. <laughs> <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Duck Blind in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 215 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to handle ambushes in your games. But first the rogue traders hatch a heretical plan in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the cloaker hides out in the character creation forge. Gather round, travelers, to hear our tale. Venture Maidens is an actual play 5th edition podcast made by four longtime friends and lifetime gamers. We take our role-playing as seriously as we keep our bulges tasteful. So if you're looking for an epic high fantasy tale spun by a killer cast, give us a shot. We publish new episodes every other week and live stream our game recordings on Twitch. Now get on out there and download Venture Maidens wherever podcasts are free. Hope to see you in the community, and don't forget to venture away. Hey, so Shane, uh, we don't have enough projects, so maybe we should do some more projects. What do you think? Uh, sure. Does this one involve a lot of reading? Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it definitely does, at least on the front end. I've literally read 400 pages in preparation for this. Nice. Okay. Uh, was it easy reading? Was it, uh, I don't know, war fiction? It was. It was both. I guess it was technically fiction, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. What were you reading, Shane? I was reading Band of Blades. Ah, this is a new Blades in the Dark hack that we picked up at Gen Con, right? Yes, it is a Forged in the Dark game. They're, they're going for, like, Powered by the Apocalypse, Forged in the Dark, you know, branding. Yeah. So, uh, why are you reading it cover to cover? We don't usually do that with new games, unless... Uh, we don't. We certainly don't do it for games that we're playing at our table, but when we play them on Twitch and stream them live, uh, it feels like I should probably read the game first. Wait, have we decided to do that? We did. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, coming up very shortly, uh, we are going to begin streaming our live actual play of Band of Blades. Uh-huh. We've got a great cast set up. We're going to be streaming Wednesday nights on Twitch. Uh, this will be hosted by Don't Split the Podcast, so um, the DSPN Twitch will will be streaming it for us. And uh, we're going to get in some dark military campaign fiction. There's going to be some some dead friends. Yeah, and dead people who I guess we could have become friends had they lived long enough. But, you know, we were at least comrades for a while. Uh-huh. Those, some undead people, you know, the the whole gamut. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a dark, gritty military fantasy, right? Yeah, so it's uh, your your black company, your, uh, your gaunt ghosts, your sharp, you know, all of those kind of like band of brothers, right? The kind of military campaign fiction uh, set in a world in which humanity has lost the big battle to uh, defeat the Cinder King and his undead army. Uh, and is now on the run and trying to mount some sort of last stand uh, without being obliterated uh, by his troops in pursuit. So it's mostly chase scenes. Uh, yeah, you know, but like 
chase scenes over the course of months, you know, as you march as a as a mercenary regiment. Pretty much nobody has done actual plays of this because it just came out. Um, I'm interested to see the multiple campaign modes. There's the mission mode, which is, you know, like regular Blades in the Dark. You're on a mission. You're going to get the job done. And then what? Campaign mode, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Two phases of play. Yeah, it's higher level. The players then take on the role of people who are running the military company and make decisions that they eventually like send people out on and then play those characters in the mission phase. Yeah, so you guys will play like the commander and the marshal and the quartermaster and like maybe the lore keeper or the spy master, um, trying to gather information and you know manage the company and manage morale and manage supplies and make the right strategic moves while also you know, living with those choices as the rank and file soldiers who have to go out and, you know, do the impossible, recover the, uh, recover the intel or, um, sabotage the supply lines or, you know, ambush, a a high ranking, uh, enemy leader. Yeah. All right. So Shane is running it, but don't hold that against us. Uh, There Mm. will be four players. Uh, I will be one of them. And I think the plan is to run for about 12 weeks. Yeah, something like that. We should be finished before Christmas, hopefully. Let's not let's not make this thing a habit, okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. All right, so uh, pay attention to Twitter for all the details. We will keep you posted and let you know exactly when it's all happening. Yep, uh, but that will be Wednesday nights, uh, Eastern time, so probably 7 or 8 p.m., um, starting in September. So follow along. Hey, also, we don't do uh, reviews of adventures, but we do have in hand uh, the new 5th edition book, Descent into Avernus. Mm -hmm. It looks cool. Um, We've got the uh, new limited edition artwork. Like I said, we don't do a whole review, but hey, if you want to know anything about it, just shoot us a message on Twitter and, I don't know, we'll answer it. Yeah, I mean, through quickly thumbing through the book, there is at least one table of results of a failed coup, so... That should be good. Are there results of a successful coup? No, of course not. I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) I assume the results of a successful coup is a coup, but who knows? You know, nothing's ever stable. Exactly. Speaking of nothing ever stable. (laughs) (laughs) Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Deathworld Iblis Prime, in the frontier city of Meridian, the rogue traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. Well, they've gotten a bit sidetracked. <laughs> well, sort of. You're, you're bringing it back around. Okay, good. Other stuff has happened. Uh, for example, we've been psychically commuting with an Eldar spirits here yep. who wants us to locate ancient burial grounds of the Eldar Exodites on our planet. Why does she want us to do that? Uh, because she would like to siphon the souls from the world spirit of the planet uh, in order to power her craft world's wraith engines. Uh, they are engaged in a century-long battle against a Tyranid high fleet, and boy, could they sure use the souls to power their wraith engines. So then those souls will not be on our planet? They will not be on your planet. And they will not be uh, making our planet harder for us to control? Uh, hopefully they will make it something less of a death world. Hey, you know what? I like this plan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, she wants to enlist uh, you, the rogue traders, in order to help her. Uh, but, but, but sort of rightfully so. You've grown a little suspicious of this strange creature. Oh, no sh- Okay. 
<laughs> yes, grown suspicious. <laughs> I mean, you want to know, why would you bother creating this whole game for the techno gangers to play? Um, you know, create all this deception, all this artifice for them, have them out seek, searching, seeking out in the jungle, and then just like lay all your cards on the table for us, you know, just four, well, seven more monkey that, uh, why, why give up the secret now? And finally, she decides to speak plainly. What does she tell us? Uh, she tells you that you have been touched by fate. Oh, gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we have been. We are his enduring light. The emperor guides us in all our paths. She's like, oh, that's so cute. It might have been a different god, but yeah, sure. You've been you've been touched by something. Fine. Believe what you want to believe, crazy lady. Um, she also points out that you are somewhat bright spots in the warp um, and are uniquely capable of helping her with the siphoning ritual, what with uh, you being on your own powerful witches in your, you know, in your own right. Something that uh, Flair displayed while uh while violating the rules of her game if you recall yeah and uh, getting a bunch of people killed and gaining a great deal of corruption on his own in the process mm-hmm. yeah he's learning you know i'm glad he's a witch and all that uh i ain't a witch but you know what if uh if this is how this is gonna go down that's cool so she says this siphoning will take years or maybe even an entire century for her to complete remotely without our help hey <laughs> sounds like leverage uh-huh yeah with our help it'll take a few weeks you think it's leverage. I mean, she's got all the time in the world. You're the one trying to colonize this place and leave. Oh, yeah, that's true. I do want my money now so I can right. go somewhere else. Anywhere else, really. Well, except Maljacked or Gontelgrim uh, or Novabella, mm-hmm. all of which suck. Uh, yeah, it's almost like you're going to turn this into a nice place and then leave, which I don't know. It's depressing. You know, maybe we should go back to Port Aquila. No, wait. <laughs> That place keeps having massacres. (laughs) You've ruined that place multiple times. (laughs) All right. So she says once we're able to find the barrows, the burial ground, then we can activate it like a beacon that will shine in the warp so that she can find it and begin the ritual. So with no great comfort and very little reassurance, you begin to discuss the terms of this arrangement. And we'll find out what we settle on next week. So, this week, we're talking about ambushes. I gotcha! Oh, whoa. You definitely failed that perception Yeah, I check. totally failed it, yeah. yeah. I get a surprise Sorry. round, I just... uh, and then we roll initiative, and then I go again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to step away from the table. You just tell me how much damage I took. Nice. <laughs> All right, so what is an ambush? Well, it's like a special form of trap, really, right? It's an encounter that triggers like a trap. Uh, when it triggers, you get attacked or you attack someone else. Mm-hmm. I think in the lore of RPGs, ambushes get a bad rap, or they're one of those things that get a bad rap because bad GMs will use them poorly. Sort of like mm-hmm. uh, they spring them on the the party with no chance to avoid it, and it's sort of a punishment. Mm-hmm. So when you are running a game and you are ambushing your party, how do you do it in a way where it it sort of makes sense and it feels like there are actual rules involved. You kind of illustrated the uh, traditional method of of handling an ambush, right? You uh, set some type of difficulty or, you know, make a hide check, and then it is opposed by the PC's awareness or their perception, and depending on who rolls higher, then one of you, like, starts with some type of advantage, right? Like, now we have things like surprise rounds, but it wasn't always that simple. You know, some games you have, like, Um, top of the initiative order or some bonus to hit or 
um, maybe your enemies start flat-footed, you know? So when you are the GM, right, it is really easy to basically sick an ambush on the PCs. You know, you get to decide what party members uh, notice, and you can just say, hey, the enemy's stealth checks were obscenely high, and there's no way you could have noticed them, uh, and they've been lying in wait for you this whole time because it was all according to Kekaku. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to surprise the players at the table, right? In D&D, at least, or in most RPGs, people kind of want both. It sometimes kind of sucks to have that dramatic irony where you're like, well, I know what's coming, but I rolled a four on my perception check, and so I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. Like, I walk in, you end up with a situation where you're like, okay, I guess I'm bound to walk in with my hands in my pockets, completely unaware that I'm walking into a box canyon and I'm going to be attacked by from all sides, despite being a reasonably competent adventurer. I'll just keep going forward then because that's what the DM said I had to do. Right? Like, okay, I'm just going to put my dice down. I'm going to stop making investigation checks. It doesn't matter because I'm falling into this trap. Oh, wow. Imagine that. Yeah. Or the other thing is, you roll it, you fail, and then it just feels bad as like, yeah, okay, you had the chance, but now you have to live with that failure in like the worst possible way, right? It just feels like reflexively bad. Um, and then you run into this tension where players always try to metagame as much as they can around it. So it's like, okay, I get ambushed, but I don't get really ambushed. You know, like, oh, I, I, I'm not flat-footed, though. You know, like, I'm, I'm like kind of dancing around and I'm ready. I just don't see it coming. I still have my touch AC. Right. <laughs> like, you get into all this, like, kind of goofy stuff. <laughs> it's less of a problem in some other games, especially in the ones where DMs don't need to roll at all, like um, Numenera and Cypher System. Yeah, it's just, like, kind of an accepted consequence that, that could happen in a game like, you know, Powered by the Apocalypse or Forged in the Dark games, where, like, that is the chance for the, the GM to introduce the narrative control is when you have rolled poorly. So that's just one of a number of consequences that could happen. Yeah, if you're not getting ambushed at all when you're playing uh, a Fortune in the Dark game, something's going wrong. <laughs> yeah, like, what, what are you, competent thieves? <laughs> <laughs> Please. Another thing that happens with ambushes is you end up in this weird metagame space where, like, the the correct, you know, order of procedure, right, is that the DM should ask for the spot check and... If you're asking for a spot check, it's implying that something is there to be spotted, right? Like, you run into this with secret doors, you run into this with ambushes, you run into this with, like, secret information where it's just, like, if you're asking for the roll, you're implying there's a reason you're rolling. Um, so now the players are kind of on edge or or maybe, like, metagaming around that, trying to figure out extra chances or whatever it is whenever you first initiate that process. Yeah, the old way of dealing with this, which I actually still kind of like sometimes, is you just kind of randomly call for spot checks or, or listener perception checks uh, whenever, just to keep people on their toes. So you don't really know which ones are faked and which ones are real. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess we kind of streamline that in, in the current version of D&D and some of the more modern games of just having like passive abilities, right? So you have a passive perception score that works in place of rolling and the DM just knows what it is. But that's sometimes weird too, right? Because it's a bit like, all right, I have achieved a passive perception of 24 and that means I'm now immune to ambushes, basically. Until you're not, right? Like right. That's, that's like what's <laughs> weird about this passive perception thing is like it's on the player's sheet, but what it does is act as like a static difficulty for NPCs to hit. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an active ability for the players and yet it's sitting there. 
Um, so it's like, I, I always find it's like very difficult to convey that that score mattered at mm-hmm. all. Right. Like, and, and when I have a high passive perception and I'm playing a high passive perception character now, it's like, Oh cool. I had no idea. I have a 20. Like, what are you telling me? Right. Like I have, I have the best passive perception of anybody in the world. And you're saying I had no idea. Cool. Yeah. It's the thing you really need to telegraph as a, as a GM, like, you actually need to sort of explain, right? Because it functions or it's supposed to function a bit like AC against ambushes, right? But you mm-hmm. know when your AC worked because a an attack is rolled and it misses you, right? And and then you you get that little hit of like, yeah, all right, I've I've good defense and I like it missed me. But with with the ambush, it's not like, well, okay, they tried to they tried to surprise you and it it really didn't work because you noticed them, you noticey guy over there. With your looking around stuff, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's it's two pieces of that, right? Like one is when when you use AC, like you have that checking mechanic of like, okay, hey, twenty one to hit. Does that hit your AC? And like, sure, you don't see the die roll and you don't see the modifiers, but the DM at least like vocalizes like, here is the number. Is that good enough? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like the DM ever says, hey, uh, some creatures you don't know about have a high check of nineteen. Does that beat your passive perception? <laughs> Like, because now we're now we're in the metagame, right? Like now you know exactly what was rolled and why, right? I think you can lampshade this a bit when you're running this. Note that everyone is surprised that the high perception character didn't see this coming, and maybe even the high perception character tell them you are surprised. And in fact, this gives you information about who has now ambushed you. They are extremely competent in what they're doing. If they were able to surprise even you, right? And if you actually say that at the table, that that sort of gives accolades to that character. They still get something, even though they have technically like, failed at this. And then the the other part of it you kind of hinted at is just like the outcome that you're hoping for with uh, with ambush mechanics is nothing cool happens. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like the cool part of this encounter was the surprise and. No, 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 it's cool. Like, you'll get the boring version of this instead. So, congrats. <laughs> right. Your success is a regular combat. I hope you right. enjoy that. Roll exactly. initiative. Good, good thing we signed up to play D&D tonight. <laughs> I was expecting regular combat. I got what I expected. Um, so, I think, you know, dealing with that challenge, right, is that when you do have those passive perception or or whatever, when the players do succeed and spot the ambush, like, instead of turning it into a regular combat, um, try to find a way to still make that an ambush. Uh, just turn the tables, mm-hmm. right? Like make it an interesting and more exciting encounter because they spotted the threat rather than make it a dull and boring encounter because cool. They're good at their jobs. Yeah. I like that within the fiction of the game, that makes a lot of sense because if you are carefully prepping for an ambush, what you are probably not prepped for is being ambushed. Right. At that particular moment. So if someone, like if the party does spot them, great. Give them a surprise round or a round to basically come up with some sort of game plan. Like maybe some people walk into the ambush, but others circle around, right? Uh, or maybe like you get the, the drop on uh, people because you know their placement where, where they have set themselves up for this ambush uh, and catch them flat-footed. Yeah. Or like, you know, you have a chance to run a decoy through, right? Or like use one character walks through and pretends and then the rest of you sneak up and, you know, put knives to the ambushers' throats. Yeah, this is what familiars are for. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I am going to shoot that parrot. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk some more about like these story driven methods for uh, conducting an ambush. Yeah. So I think you can adapt these from games where the GM doesn't roll like we talked about, right? Like an ambush becomes a potential consequence or a potential complication from a role that the PCs have made, Uh, which, which doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, in that traditional kind of D and D adventure, um, gray text sort of, box text approach to adventure design like the ambush could happen just at any point right an encounter could be pulled and become an ambush because Mm -hmm. the roles dictated that happened which is very like opposite of the kind of simulationist more D&D old school sort of approach yeah if you think about like pre-written adventure paths what usually happens is you have an encounter and you get the encounter set up And it is either going to be a relatively normal encounter or it's a social encounter that goes awry or something like that, or it is an ambush, Mm -hmm. right? Like an ambush is, (laughs) it's usually um, encounter five, the ambush. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The ambush in location. Right. It's usually right at the beginning or two thirds of the way through the adventure. (laughs) The warehouse ambush, the bridge ambush, the ship ambush. But I like your point that you can take uh, any encounter and flip it, turn it into an ambush take an ambush, uh, reverse it so it's a counter ambush or, you know, take an ambush and turn it so that it's a regular old encounter. And this is sort of what happens in a game like Blades in the Dark where the ambush occurs as a consequence of, of a battle and you just you just shift uh, the nature of the encounter down a step uh, not in the player's favor when they have uh, rolled poorly. Yeah, so... So, and I like Blades in the Dark because, like, it uses terms that describe the, like, the mechanical uh, as well as, like, sort of the narrative footing. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, one of the concepts is um, position, right, which is somewhere between controlled, risky, or desperate. And that's that changes the kind of distribution of results that you get on the dice. So, if you're in a desperate position, you know, something miraculous could happen, but also something really, really bad could happen. If you're in a controlled position, like the risk isn't too high. Like you're, you're not going to end up taking like some huge harm. You know, you're not at risk of death by failing a controlled position kind of role. Um, Right. I, I like uh, thinking of ambushes in that way, right? If you are setting an ambush, you are now in a controlled position because you have very literally controlled the environment and the circumstances of this combat. Right. If you are being ambushed, you are in a desperate situation, but you can also have a situation where you're like, oh crap, like the guards are coming, what do we do? Hide around the corner and as soon as they come around like we're going to bonk them over the head, right? That's <laughs> probably risky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, it could be an ambush. It could right. also be a disaster. <laughs> like, likewise, you know, like you might spot the guards at the last second and you can, you know, surprise them on their ambush by just charging directly into them. It's like, oh, okay, maybe that ambush doesn't quite work and you are just flat-footed in combat and, and it's sort of, you know, even, even keel cool right but your your sort of narrative position of of controlled risky and desperate mirrors the mechanics that go into it so um one example of this like i think using an ambush as a potential consequence of anything like um blades in the dark is is not really about combat right like that is just a it's a piece of the puzzle a a potential outcome one that our group tends to land in because we're too complicated (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but still, you know, like not the core mechanic, right? It's not it's not dungeon crawling. So um, an example could be like 
a PC is climbing up to the roof uh, on on the way to break into you know some noble's mansion. This is just you know your regular kind of standard risky position. Um, you know, like sure something something bad happens on the roll. Um, you could fall and take some harm. You could make a bunch of noise and you know potentially alert people um, to your presence. Uh, or it could mean that you're now in a desperate position. What does desperate mean? You know, like desperate could mean you're clinging to the the ledge of the roof by your fingertips and a stiff breeze could knock you down, right? It could also mean like there's guards on the roof that lean over and spot you um, and rush off to sound an alarm, right? Or it could mean, oh, you were spotted by guards on a neighboring roof and you're going to be ambushed as soon as you get up there, right? Like they're going to let you get up and then they're going to fill you full of crossbow bolts. Yeah, I like that there's sort of this mechanic of delaying the ultimate consequences by ramping up the risk and the direness of those consequences when they actually come to fruition yeah so like instead of taking you know like bruised knee as harm like you wait until you know shot full of crossbow bolts is your harm (laughs) yeah or maybe take none right because maybe you catch yourself right exactly um so i guess to to take this and then sort of adapt it more towards like like the more simulationist games, right? You want to use those perception rules to find out if an ambush exists, not to find out if they spot an ambush that exists, right? So going into an encounter, um, leave the positioning of the enemies kind of up to that perception rule, right? Where they might be in an ambush, they might be ready to be countered, or they might just kind of be in their standard sort of mulling about playing cards in the break room uh, when some adventurers bust into their dungeon. Now, if this sounds like a big ask, and I think it does for like a traditional Dungeons and Dragons GMs, um, I think it can be if you're just sort of going into this saying, ah, any encounter could turn into an ambush. But if you think of ambush as a condition of a location or a condition of a situation rather than an encounter in and of itself, you can almost like make a template of it that can be applied in any situation if it happens to come to that. Yeah, and I mean, you have actually more levers in D&D than you might think. Like, there is stealth, which is your ability to sneak around and avoid being spotted by ambushers. There is perception, which is your ability to spot ambushers before they spot you. Um, there's also like, you know, you have deception and, and insight and other things like that, which would be useful in figuring out exactly how are they going to do this? And then what are my options that I can weigh um, to kind of avoid this or counter it or simply, you know, sidestep it entirely? Right. And in terms of mechanical consequences, like how to run this in the moment, 5e, for example, makes it pretty simple. Just give everyone who has the advantage in this situation now literally advantage right yeah exactly (laughs) just roll twice (laughs) great do that uh give uh, everybody on that side inspiration here you go you're pretty inspired because you're feeling pretty hopeful about your situation right now right done (laughs) and you know that that applies to all different kinds of systems besides uh D, right if you're uh playing with a system where you have you know fate points or force points or anything like that like ambushes are pretty common in star wars for example just flip over some of those force points uh, you know, shift them from the GM side to the player side or vice versa. And I, I like this because I think there is this feeling as a player where if you avoid an encounter that you know was going to be difficult, 
like that still feels like a win as a player right and like mechanically you get the xp or whatever but also like you kind of feel like yeah we played the game really good you know like it, it almost feels if you do it every once in a while like it feels better than just winning the combat which you kind of expect to do anyway yeah, it can actually make for a better story, too. Uh, in our uh, Return to Eberron game recently, I won't spoil it, but uh, you guys were able to use basically one, maybe two spells in order to invo- avoid an entire, like, big encounter. I mean, don't worry. We definitely, like, gave it back on the next encounter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, ha- I had all these stats. What was I going to do with them? I had to use them. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, we used nine spells to try and get across a 20-foot oh, chasm. chasm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The killer chasm, yes. Exactly. The sentient killer chasm. With the, with the dread gazebo at the bottom. <laughs> uh, and then as a as a DM, right, like this also kind of helps that uh, that flattening feeling of the ambush that doesn't work. It gives you a way to kind of fill that time, right, and feel like you've still used the encounter, even though you didn't necessarily use it the way that like the adventure had dictated you would. The six goblins lying in ambush that encounter got used, right? It didn't necessarily get used as a combat, but like the players interacted with that encounter in some way and, and bypassed that encounter. That was a success. That was a win. That was a narrative element that remained in the game. Cause like the thing that I absolutely hate, especially in published adventures is when there's 22 rooms and the players only actually see eight of them. And I'm like, cool, but there were 14 other rooms that I bought. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I want to use those cool things because there's some cool stuff in there. And I really liked this. Like, explore more, please. You know, like, I, I hate that wasted prep, that feeling of like, oh, but I had such cool stuff. And you guys just kept going right on past it. Yeah, you just kept heading straight toward the goal. And that disappointed me because I have all these side quests. Exactly. <laughs> Why aren't you grinding? But but every piece of equipment that I put in that dungeon carefully told the story of the history of the various inhabitants of the dungeon, and you could have learned all about the old empire and, and their artifacts. and uh. I remember there's like this random side quest in uh, the old Neverwinter Nights video game where you're investigating this cave and there's a dead adventurer, and they were obviously a scholar who was investigating this old dead civilization, and they have all their notes in there. And then like... You know, you walk over the trap that they tripped, and that was basically the last trap, and then there's a big chest. <laughs> and you open it, and, like, this old spirit is like, ah, oh, you have summoned me, and now you they will face my wrath unless you can tell me all about my civilization because it has lived on in, in history, right? And you, you can be like, uh, I have no idea and fight the guy. Or you can be like, uh, you can answer all the questions correctly because you have the scholar's notes, uh-huh. And then, like, after that, the, the spirit is like, how did you know all these things? And you can tell him, oh, I'm a scholar. Or you could be like, yeah, there's this dead guy over here. <laughs> <laughs> and I found his stuff and I didn't do anything. Uh, but also, you already gave me the treasure, so get out of here. <laughs> Beat it, kid. Yeah. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> nobody remembers you. Actually, I'm going to rip this up, so literally nobody remembers you. <laughs> I was a jerk. All right, so let's move on then to talking about uh, what probably most players think is the most fun, and that is ambushing enemies and NPCs. Mm-hmm. So I think as the DM, you want to encourage this by giving the players free reign to describe their setup and let them tell you what advantages they're trying to gain by springing this trap. You know, like 
sometimes you set up a, ta- a trap that is just meant to give you like surprise, right? And first action, but that's actually kind of boring. So maybe there's a net that they want to like tangle somebody up in, or there's pepper spray that they want to release and, you know, have everybody hacking and coughing so they can quickly capture them. Or maybe they want to drop somebody into a pit or they just want to make sure that everybody can focus fire on the, the one leader so that they can capture the rest of them, something like that. Yeah, this is one of the things that we are big advocates of, right? It's when you don't have to do a ton of prep and you can just hand over the encounter to the players and be like, um, <laughs> it's up to you. You decide what happens now. Right. I don't need to place four or five different things in order for you to figure out. It's not a puzzle. It's just, I don't know. Tell me where you want to do the ambush. Okay. Yep. I don't know what you want to do. You tell me and you set it up. Go for it. I don't know. Do you have those resources? Can you go get them? Cool. Right. And then so once they've done this, then it's on you as the DM to sort of establish the measure of the difficulty. Mm -hmm. Right. So what is the DC? What are the advantages or or whatever it is? Like figure out mechanically um, the fair way to determine what the outcome is when enemies walk into this ambush or don't, as it were. Yeah, and I think there are a couple ways to do it. You can sort of have in your head set difficulties, and then depending on what the players decide to do, you lower those difficulties. Or you can take a look at the preparations that your players have already done and then set difficulties from there, just depending on how effective you think those were. Yeah. Um, and then I think, like, traditionally in D&D, you would, you know, if you follow the book, you would have the PCs like make their stealth or whatever type of you know deception roll in order to set the thing um, and then the NPCs would roll some type of perception or whatever um, to resist against it right and that, that would be how you kind of settle it um, I think I kind of prefer to flip that dynamic though since this is like you know this is the PCs taking the active role as the ambush like let the PCs do the active role to determine how good of a result the ambush actually produces Right. So like let them roll a stealth against some baseline DC, like basically the passive perception of the enemies. Right. Like highlight that it's the PCs rolling to determine how good this works, not the NPCs rolling to determine how well they avoid it. Right. They're not setting up conditions. And then it's basically a roll up to the GM to determine if this succeeds or not. Right. It just feels like a more active participation, you know. Right. I also like uh, that you can bring in other skills as well. Like part of the reason that you might want to set up an ambush is some of your party members are terrible at stealth. Mm -hmm. So great. If they can find an innovative or interesting way to overcome the fact that they're not good at hiding, like make it so that it's impossible for them to actually be seen or, you know, they uh, use deception to build a a duck blind, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Like hunters wear bright orange. That's not because that's not to make you stealthy. <laughs> well, they, they were bright orange because they hunt things that are colorblind. <laughs> but not all D and D monsters are. <laughs> so you you can hide behind stuff, and it right. makes you much harder to see, or even perhaps impossible to see, or maybe like um, your wizard uses invisibility, right? Right. And you're too far away to hear. Great. Exactly. Yeah. You you you've spent resources in some manner. Well, actually, so it's interesting. You talk about spending resources. One of the most important resources that you spend when you allow the players to set up this type of ambush is time, like time in the session, right? Like, because this is effectively planning. um, And especially like this tends to be planning for a series of contingencies, many of which won't happen. 
Um, so like, it, it feels like you need to make sure if they're investing 20 or 30 minutes at the table to like get all their preparations correct, that there needs to be some payoff for them for spending that time. Otherwise, like the session will fall flat, right? Uh, and I think two ways to do this. One, the players will be talking amongst themselves about how it'll be awesome if they're able to pull this thing off. So some of those things should probably happen. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing is they're building contingency plans to make sure that the enemies are not able to do this thing. So if they do effectively build in a contingency plan, great. Use that idea. Have the enemy try to do that thing and then fail right. so that they can actually see that hey, that preparation that we did uh, was valuable. And I'm glad we spent 20 minutes of our day on this. Right. Um, and likewise, like, don't let a die roll undermine the fiction. <laughs> So, like, if they set up all of these things, um, that happens, right? And and sure, if they roll a 1 or, you know, if the enemies roll a 20 or whatever, like, fluky outcome happens, like, okay. Um, but make sure that you're honoring, like, the fiction that they have established. So, like, you know, maybe the the rope that was tr- that was meant to trigger all of this uh, is was a little frayed, and it actually snapped in the in the critical moment, right? So it didn't go off as planned, and the ambush sprung early or sprung ineffectively or whatever, right? So like, you're respecting like all of those preparations got made, and like one thing was overlooked or whatever. Like that's how you got to your outcome. Um, or, or likewise, like it went too well and it swung too far and now you have to duck out of the way of it too. Um, and so you aren't able to get off that shot that you were expecting or, or whatever. Right. As a player, I would say, you know, take all of the advice that we've just given for, uh, GMs and make sure that you're being vocal enough so that your GM who's watching you plan an ambush, uh, knows what you're expecting and, uh, knows, knows what you'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Also, if you have an adversarial GM, uh, I apologize. I'm sorry that it has happened to you. But yeah, maybe sandbag a few things and don't keep giving them ideas about all the ways that this could go awry. Yeah, I mean, part of this is, <laughs> is good faith on the GM's part. Yeah. <laughs> like, be a fan of your players. <laughs> um, I'm also a fan of metagaming in this instance. Like, if you are playing a character who maybe isn't the brightest bulb, I think it's fine to still give input about how to plan the ambush as a player because that's fun. Yeah, you're, you're just giving it to the intelligent characters who could actually plot this out right Right, exactly oh would your character realize this this or this right so as we kind of wrap up here um you want to talk about some uh some notable ambushes from our campaigns well the one that we've touched on a few times before is the ambush near the end of the original morning glory campaign where the party had finally unearthed the true name of the rakshasa fiend nistrum shadar Uh, And we're deciding to finally kill him. So by using his true name, they knew that they could summon him and they could keep him in place long enough to try uh, to kill him. Uh, And I had no idea how you were going to do that because I told you, you have teleportation magic. You can basically go anywhere in the world. You're, I think, level 17. Uh, Uh Tell me where this ambush happens and what you do to prepare it. We go to Zendrick and we build a flump house. Next yep <laughs> and i guess a pit of acid <laughs> and a, a pit of acid that's true with a, with a force cage you guys well the force cage was actually quite effective the pit of acid uh i was really just uh for you know flavor i guess 
What? It, it was for style. Points for style. Are you style. trying to say that he was immune to acid? He was not immune to acid. He just, you know, didn't take a ton of damage from regular <laughs> mundane acid. <laughs> Does, sure. Isn't like... <laughs> Isn't a vial of acid like 1d4 acid damage? I would be here all day, dude. <laughs> I, got, I got force cages on force I, cages. Didn't, didn't you acid splash for hours to fill it up? <laughs> I did. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was uh, a, a serious showdown with a longtime rival, but you can still have fun with it. Did it matter that Lou built up Flump House? It was kind of funny and told us a lot about like her priorities as a character. Uh, it didn't really affect the outcome, but it also didn't like detract anything. You didn't spend all that many resources because you had not unlimited time to set up this ambush, but you know, taking one day to do it wasn't a problem. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> Rakshasas act on a scale of millennia, so what is one more day going to matter? Yeah. And then in Dynasty Unwarranted, we also had uh, a few ambushes, actually, um, recently in the uh, in the Meridian arc. Uh, yes, that's because we keep rolling terribly. Uh, <laughs> because the Emerald Stalkers, I believe, were rolled to be ambush predators, as it were. Uh, yeah, basically invisible in the jungle. Yeah, they're like uh, velociraptors with... Uh, Chameleon coating. Yeah, predator <laughs> invisibility. Yes. Uh, yeah, so they got us all the time, and it made us extremely paranoid. And every time we set camp, we prepared for an ambush. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, given that that was repeated over time, like the first ambush, you basically there was nothing you could do for it, right? It was just hunker down and endure it, try to get a sense of what was happening, and and try to affect the outcome. And then over time, it became like you you started developing methods to increase your odds of spotting them and then like to guard your perimeter. And then eventually, right? Like you develop those like stalker sense goggles, which let you actually see through their chameleon cloak. And I think it worked well that they are animals, right? Apex predators. Like it's not a team of six bounty hunters who are out to get us and have ambushed us. And now of course are taking us into custody or just killing us. Right. Yeah. Um, it was a group of hungry animals who came in, uh, killed a few like extraneous guardsmen, and then disappeared. And then we were able to gather information from that. Right. Exactly. That's what guardsmen are for. <laughs> but also, I think like they were sort of environmental dangers more so than you know an encounter kind of like NPC to overcome. Right. Right. Like the um, the end. The end state of that ambush was not all of them lie dead and you are still living so you move on with your day and never have to deal with it again. It was more around like introducing that this environment is incredibly deadly if you are not prepared for it. So you need to be prepared for it. Whereas the Nishram Shadar ambush was you cannot take him head to head and you know that because you fought him before. Exactly. Uh, You have to build in an advantage if you even have a hope to win this combat. And so we did. It was called a Flump House. (laughs) Flump House MVP. Also, it's canon. Flumps live in houses. They're not animals. The one house. It's the only one in existence. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Yes, that's the sound of my fine clothing being torn apart by your ridiculous mundane acid. Well, then it's time to move on to the character creation forge and get you some new threads. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. 
You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. Or also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord for up-to-the-minute updates on when that Band of Blades stream begins. Plus also memes! So many memes. <laughs> okay, don't trade for the memes. <laughs> All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Cloaker. Shane, tell us about the Cloaker. So the Cloaker is is in D&D lore, right, is literally like the mimic of cloaks. Um, it yeah. is a uh, <laughs> it is a large manta ray creature that resembles a black cloak. Um, it has like uh, two like hook claws uh on either end of it and then it has like a big mouth under its inside so if it's you know just kind of in a pile of rags or literally hanging on a coat rack like you would mistake it for a cloak um but when it attacks it envelops its target it wraps around them and then just starts eating them with its big mouth um it also has this like psychic moan that can be frightening or discomforting or or different effects over the different editions yes um, it is one of the iconic ambush predators of D. Mm-hmm. yeah uh so we're just doing druid 20 right druid 20 turn to a cloaker <laughs> exactly. and we're done well as of third edition so <laughs> little history of the cloaker uh it was actually introduced <laughs> in first edition AD&D uh in 1981 in the secrets of the slaver stockade adventure so uh secrets of the slavers they're bad people yeah it's not that's not a secret no <laughs> the secret was one of their cloaks was actually a cloaker wow uh, but as of third edition they're aberrations so druid won't cut it lame yeah i know the 1981 those uh, adventure reveals were pretty intense <laughs> <laughs> all right so what does our cloaker do i assume attacks or fights a bit like a cloaker uh-huh yeah the idea is like ambush capable of um grappling if necessary uh, mm-hmm. has has a frightening moan kind of effect and uh, just Swallows generally people whole. generally you know a lot of a uh, lot of sneak attack damage cool all right what's the build the build is scout rogue 17 college of whispers bard 3 so from bard we get second level spells uh, including plenty of enchantments to model the cloakers many different moaning effects yeah you've got frighten charm uh couple other different things that you can throw in there with your different performance (laughs) okay (laughs) expertise performance cloak moan (laughs) you'll have jack of all trades and you'll also have expertises from bards so you can definitely handle that also on the glockenspiel (laughs) you'll get song of rest you'll also get psychic blades which lets you burn your bardic inspiration to add damage on a hit yeah, and it's psychic damage, which feels kind of appropriate for a cloaker. Creepy psychic damage, yes. Um, and then you'll get Words of Terror, which lets you talk to a creature for a minute, and then it becomes frightened of you for an hour, which is kind of like a very like low-level, like low-intensity, <laughs> low-frequency psychic moan. You know, like the Havana Syndrome. It's like it's <laughs> more of a long-term okay. sort of, yeah. Uh, it it sounds like an incel. You build uh, an incel. Uh-huh. <laughs> Talks to you for one minute, frightens you for an hour. <laughs> I don't like what we talked about at all. Please don't ever speak to me again. <laughs> all right, from Rogue, on top of the damage from Psychic Blades, we're also getting 96 sneak attack dice. Yep. 
Uh, we'll also get four more expertises. Of course, these will be athletics, acrobatics to help with your grappling, uh, deception to help with your pretending to be a cloak, or just, you know, generally uh, stealth would be good for uh, managing your ambushes. I like the idea that maybe you just cast invisibility on yourself, but not your cloak. Mm-hmm. So all your gear and uh, clothes turn invisible. Except for your cloak. Oh, so you're you're cosplaying as a cloaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Well, that was my character idea, so thanks for ruining it. <laughs> uh, you get Skirmisher, which lets you burn a reaction to move half your speed uh, without provoking if an enemy ends its turn next to you. Plus, you get expertise in nature and survival. Um, you'll get the usual rogue stuff, uncanny dodge, evasion. Um, at ninth level, you get superior mobility, which gives you some extra movement. Um, 11, you get reliable talent. And then the uh, scout abilities at 13, you get ambush master. This will give you advantage on initiative. And then you and allies, you and your allies have advantage versus the first creature that you hit in the first round of combat. Um, so it doesn't work on your first attack, but your second attack, you know, if you uh, dual wield or something like that. Uh, will have advantage. Eventually you get blind sense out to 10 feet. Handy when you're pretending to be a cloak. Mm-hmm. Cloaks don't have eyes. And you gotta face the wall. Yeah. So you hung me up the wrong way, idiot. <laughs> Slip your mind to give you proficiency at wisdom saving throws and eventually your capstone. Sudden strike. You get a second attack as a bonus action and it can trigger an additional sneak attack. Which makes you pretty dangerous. You're rolling with a lot of advantage, a lot of extra dice on your damage. You know, six or eighteen d six sneak attack in in the first round of combat is uh, that's a wake up call. Yeah. Plus, you could uh, drop uh, two sets of psychic blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, you're rolling with advantage, so there's an excellent chance of a critical being in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of leveling order, we'll start Rogue One, then we'll take all of our bard levels and then finish out Rogue 17. All right, Shane, who is your cloaker? Uh, so my cloaker is an aberration enthusiast. Um, of course, this Gross. show is, is noted for having aberration enthusiasts like Lou and every character that uh, Susie plays. But uh, mine prefers cloakers as their, uh, you know, not, not nasty tentacle things, but just kind of like quiet, unassuming, um, deceptive things. So, as you mentioned, he will use invisibility to hide himself and literally has a cloak that has a mouth painted on the inside of it um, so that he may go about pretending to be a cloaker. Of course, you know, when he descends upon you, then it's all just sneak attack and uh, daggers and rapiers and whatnot. But uh, up until that point, you're never really sure what you're facing with him. That's creepy. It's creepy Mm -hmm. and gross. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And how would you like to gross us out today, Ishan? My cloaker is a bounty hunter. Um, she has all the skills of someone who can track people out into the wild or, you know, chase after them after they've attempted to flee uh, from creditors or the long arm of the law or whomever. However, uh, she has a habit of letting her quarry know that she's coming after them. In fact, she'll saunter up to them in a bar, have a seat with them, have a drink, and then tell them a very creepy story about how someone is coming after them and they should probably be on the lookout and watch their backs at all times because you never know when your fate could be sealed. Are you afraid? Because you should be afraid. 
all the time. In fact, I'm just going to leave now. You'll see me again someday. Perfect. Uh, and then eventually, yeah, she does track them down, but she just relishes the fact that before she does that, because of course they will never actually see her coming, uh, they're just always worried and always looking over their shoulders. I like to think that sometimes she uh, does that to people who have no bounty. Oh, just to, you know, like, hey, roll perception. Oh, no, don't worry. There's nothing out there. <laughs> and then just disappears and then just hopes that they live in fear forever. Perfect. So she says, you said my guy was creepy, but yours is a total, <laughs> like, total <laughs> misanthrope. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are continuing our series on how to play non-human characters, and we are wrapping up Eberron in advance of Eberron rising from the last war, and we're talking about playing changelings. And in the character creation forge? We're building the American. Oh, which continent in Eberron are they from? Uh, all of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> they- can't keep them away well that's it for episode 215 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening total party thrill is also brought to you this week by DD beyond DD beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for dungeons and dragons it is also the official digital toolset of our game table mm-hmm. because every time somebody forgets their character sheet or forgets to level up, everyone else yells at them. Just use D&D Beyond. <laughs> Why aren't you doing that? Hey, can you take a photo of my character sheet that I left at your place? Yes, I can do that, but why isn't it in D&D Beyond? Exactly. Uh, in D&D Beyond, you can build your characters, you can track campaigns, you can run adventures, and do so much more. It's got lots of awesome free content, like the D&D Basic Rules. And there are also articles from writers like James J. Heck and videos from people like Todd Kenrick. And they are always updating the site with new features, new usability enhancements, and lots of little improvements to make it better always hard to tell if it's a new feature or just one you didn't know about before i think literally last night people realized you can swipe between uh tabs Uh on your character sheet yeah (laughs) and it was uh it was a stop the conversation moment as for a minute everyone went oh that's so great yeah it was it was table changing exactly (laughs) so if that sounds interesting to you and believe me it should you can check it out at www.dndbeyond.com